could this be a form of warning? Let's assume for a minute, and it's a big assumption, that this is state-sponsored, that it is Russian. So the Russians know that there's a lot more to come out about the hack. There may be more to come out about all the other investigations into Russia. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, joined by David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And Susan Hennessy, a fellow in national security in governance studies at Brookings. She's also the managing editor of the Lawfare blog. ER nerds, I hope you enjoyed our first international podcast on Tuesday from Abu Dhabi. We've enjoyed hearing your stories about why you absolutely need a mug. They're getting really creative. Also, somebody created a mug for us in honor of our reference to the Pismo Beach disaster and sent it to us. So we've sent out hundreds of mugs, but we got one back in return. And I encourage that. From now on, I'm not going to mention how you can get a mug. I will start talking about what kind of mugs we want here. Right. It's not what ER can do for you. It's, it's what, what you, you can, can do, do for ER. ER. And so David and Susan are sitting here with paper cups in front of them. Yeah. We're <laughs> waiting for our little mugs that have the photos of Rothkopf on them. Exactly. Yeah. Those would... Like a silhouette, like a Victorian silhouette. That's nice. That's it's a very nice. Mm-hmm. It's a really it's like, nice This is a classy it. podcast. Yeah, exactly. Know? It's the classiest podcast. We are so... We'd like him fully clothed in all those photos, please. (laughs) Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, I've been reading in the newspaper about the WikiLeaks hack, and I've read one set of articles going, oh my God, this is much worse than the Edward Snowden hack. And then I read another set of articles going, everybody knew this. There's nothing new in this hack. It, you know, your smart TV can be used as, to spy on you. Duh. Of course, your smart TV. Although I do like the names that you, you know, the weeping angel. Like somebody was sitting there going, hmm, let's call this program to listen in on people through their television sets. Weeping I mean, right. That's going to look great when it leaks to the press. Yeah, that'll get right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Don't you want to get the job of the guy who sits around the agency who is, in fact, the code name maker? Codename maker. First of all, it's International Women's Day. So let's not assume it's a guy. Exactly. And I will say, as a former lawyer in the intelligence community, I have rejected more than one codename as you know. On what grounds? We will not doing this. On just general appropriateness grounds. Even because it was like occasionally monkey butt or something like that. And you just, and you would say, I do not want to have a program called Monkey Butt. Yes, basically. You know, this is a moment for me to ask a question to Susan. I've always wanted to know about code names. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. I have been told that when operations come up, rather than given a name, they actually like go to a computer system that generates a name kind of the way hurricanes get named out for the next. Is that true? There are multiple ways that names are generated. There is sort of the automated, you know, generate your code name. There's also sort of regional specific ways that they come up with with various names. There are sort of formats that are used. um, And then there are some that if you look over the history, clearly the name in some way references the underlying activity in a way that's not utterly random. It's some combination of all of them. Because I was so disappointed when I learned that Olympic Games, the name for the Iran operation, was like 
automatically generated <laughs> by a machine. Which I'm, probably, the, you know, a hundred million dollar program for the automatic code name generator. Yeah, right. That was. <laughs> we just use a BuzzFeed list. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, that reveals my deeper ignorance. It wasn't just whether a a guy would have named this or a gal would have named this. It's did some PC name this? Exactly. <laughs> well, see, this, this is, is something we could send to Mexico, this, you know, is, or or India. You know, I don't know if you can outsource your code names, yeah. David. Um, but it's just, you know, you're what Trump is fighting against. Uh, is that it? I've heard it's, that. Yeah. Make American code names great again. <laughs> you know, but this is why people listen to the ER, right? They want to get this kind of inside dope. But you guys have a lot of perspective, obviously, on this. Is this WikiLeaks thing something to get all our knickers in a twist over or not? So I think it's too soon to know. So yes, obviously these are probably authentic documents. I actually have no idea of the underlying truth, but they strike me as sort of as likely authentic documents. This would be a, a large cache to sort of fabricate in a convincing way. So the mere fact that some part of the CIA was compromised, that itself is a significant story. The fact that some of sort of the details are released, that's significant. Then there is sort of this additional promise of what else they have. So there's the set of facts on, okay, they've released this stuff. This has been compromised. It's not a nothing story, but it's it's not worse than Edward Snowden, right? It's kind of it's developer notes, it's general descriptions, it's you know maybe the targeting of the French elections. I mean, nothing sort of shocking. If it is, in fact, if they do, in fact, have the underlying tools themselves and the full list of targets and the full arsenal, that's hugely significant. But I think that there are lots of sort of red flags or reason to be, reasons to be skeptical that that is true. So if you think of what Snowden revealed as, by and large, um, strategic weapons that the NSA had – ways of breaking into foreign computer systems, getting into entire networks. I think what we're seeing out of the CIA is closer to the tactical weapons. It's what you would if, – if Q was still alive, my favorite character from, from James Bond movie. Q is still alive. He's just a young kid now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm thinking of the old Q. I, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, if the old Q was still alive, this is the stuff he'd rail against because it was all cyber. But basically, this is what they would be – they would kind of be handing out to people. That said, I think there are a couple of big interesting lessons from this. The first is that the argument that you frequently hear from the FBI and from others about going dark – and how awful it is for American investigators because people are using encryption and so forth uh, that is getting in the way of their investigations. I'm sure in some cases is true. But if you step back and you look at what the government can collect now versus what it could collect 10 or 15 years ago before the Internet of Things, before the iPhone, you come to the conclusion pretty rapidly that the law enforcement argument here is utter and complete garbage. That they have, they have the capabilities, whether they can get the approval of the courts on the law enforcement side to use them as another, they have the capabilities to get into far more data than they ever could have even dreamed of getting into 10 years ago before you commanded something. Well, but I mean, it, it also goes beyond that, right? It's not just that they have the capabilities. It's who is they. Because presumably, 
if the U.S. government has the capabilities, quite apart from whether or not WikiLeaks releases the details, everybody has the capabilities to do this. Right. So, look, I think a few sort of broad points. One, you know, the going dark problem is primarily a problem for state and local law enforcement, and it's primarily sort of an FBI law enforcement problem. Um, yes, it has particular sort of interactions with the intelligence community, but the intelligence community's ability to um, circumvent those problems is just really rather different, and those tools are not commingled, right? There's IC tools, there's law enforcement tools. Those are kept separate in right. most cases, and it's sort of it can be problematic when they aren't. You know, to the extent that sort of people talk about, oh, you know, the Internet of Things and don't panic and there's all these other options, you know, I, I think I think of this as sort of the, the, the Wi-Fi Barbie solution, right? Oh, don't worry that you aren't able to sort of tap uh, phones anymore. Don't worry that everyone's having encrypted messages and encrypted emails. Um, you know, you're just going to go ahead and figure out, you know, the, the microphone-enabled Elmo or the microwave or your refrigerator, and, and you're going to collect all, these, all this information, and that's going to sort of uh, solve your problem. Problem. I don't think that that's uh, realistic, um, in part because you have to target lots and lots and lots of different things. You have to hope that the person has the conversation sort of in, in the right level of proximity. Um, you know, I, I think we have to sort of think about the going dark problem as look, law enforcement and, and the intelligence community had access to X amount of communications or needs access to X amount of communications in order to do their job. They say that they have less than, than X, right? They, they don't have enough. Can these other emerging opportunity spaces close enough of the gap? So yes, Internet of Things, that's going to be helpful. Metadata, that's going to be helpful. Um, you know, there's all sorts it's of like the chandelier cam and the Trump bedroom that the CIA used to spy on him. Exactly. That yes. would be very helpful, right? Now he's going to tweet that out. He, yeah, if he listens Just to this, that sick you know, bag have you dude. ever thought that instead of mugs, we could have ER logoed candelier sh- chandelier, chandelier cams? Cam? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a good idea. No, I don't think he listens to this. You know, first of all, it's way too substantive, and I think he would get lost pretty early. Secondly, he spends so much time listening to Fox and Friends. Right. You know, I tweeted out like yesterday that the teleprompter operator on Fox and Friends is the most powerful person in the world. Because they could just change anything. The next thing you know, the president sees it and tweets things out. What does the defense of that system look like? Right? Are our adversaries going to start targeting? I mean, people are already talking about his Twitter account uh, being vulnerable. There's a great novel in here. The teleprompter God. operator. It changed. turns out he's a turns out he's a Russian spy, <laughs> right? And the idiot president of the United States tunes in every morning in Moscow, is saying, "Today, <laughs> tell him about the Swedish immigration riots." <laughs> Great, you two can you two can scratch this out on parchment by candlelight, you know? No, we, that's a, we don't we don't. The you, collapse you, of civilization <laughs> has come. Well, yeah, but you know, how funny is that? No, you're right. It'd you're, be good. I'd read that book. I'd watch that movie. Too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm listening to this, but I'm still not hearing anything out of this WikiLeaks thing that is really like I, look, new. One of the things that we know a lot of other groups do this. I mean, as I was well. talking to my daughters the other day, and they were like, "You don't have a sticker over the camera on your laptop." You Wait, do you and not I, have a sticker for the camera on your laptop? You don't? What a sticker. Like, and I was like, camera. get a sticker. Does anybody sell yeah, like laptop, laptop yeah, bindies? Yeah. They, 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 they do sell. Uh, <laughs> they little, don't call them that. Yes, but, but they, they should call them they, laptop <laughs> bindies. Right? Yes. Just stick it should, right. uh, David, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you like a really inexpensive <laughs> hack for this. I actually uh, used a Post-it note, just you the did? sticky part of it. Because yeah. you were afraid people were 
videoing you. I was afraid you. I, I was afraid you were David. <laughs> just, you just imagine the guy hacking, and he goes, "Oh my god, my eyes." <laughs> you should do an ER nerds uh, branded webcam cover. That's an idea. That's an idea. Just a little sticky. Just like gross. For just sort of like ER nerds security. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. put one on your phone. Put one. And put re- one on your chandelier. If you need one, yeah, Trump needs one on his chandelier or on the on the plastic throw that he has. Never mind. But the you know the people you know you talk about Internet of Things actually. Progress is making it so that every day there are more things that can be listened in on. The other thing that progress is is making making sure is that while I'm sure we will hear that it will cost millions of dollars or more to far more for the CIA to go develop new tools, the fact of the matter is – the lesson in cyber is nothing that you do today is necessarily going to work next Thursday after somebody patches it. So they would have to be constantly updating these anyway just so to this, go make this, them this work. This brings me to another question. And this does sort of drift into the general realm of wild-ass speculation and conspiracy theory mongering. but Which is why people listen to this show. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. WikiLeaks is not – you know, an independent academic organization searching for truth. WikiLeaks is, you know, a front for the Russian government that releases things to serve somebody's purpose. Why do you think they chose to release this now? So that's one of the, the sort of why I'm so skeptical about the story that this was like a, an inside contractor who had policy concerns and decided to use WikiLeaks. So first of all, the notion that WikiLeaks has a connection to the Russian government is not a conspiracy theory unsupported, right? Julian Assange has a, a media contract with RT that is you know, the Kremlin's propaganda arm. That's a factual assertion. In the uh, January uh, report that the intelligence community released on uh, the election hacking, they specifically said that WikiLeaks and the Russian government uh, and WikiLeaks and RT had, quote, collaborated multiple times, right? So uh, those connections are sort of are, are out there. Um, whether or not you want to say it's it's a close enough relationship to be a front, you know, I don't know, but, but clearly there's some kind of relationship. So, you know, paired with the fact that um, for their, you know, deep, deep commitment to uh, to transparency and, um, you know, afflicting the, the comfortable, they appear to... Uh, have a lot of time to uh, afflict the United States um, and other Western countries and sort of the the elites of those nations, um, and yet never uh, never sort of a mean word to say about Vladimir Putin or all kinds of sort of totalitarian nice regimes. Lovely Why man. Pick on him? Uh, that I do think sort of paired with the strategic timing of their releases uh, it raises real questions. They are not a media organization. Um, they're releasing these things for a particular purpose. Uh, their source, at least uh, once in the very near recent past, has been a hostile foreign nation. Where are they getting this stuff? Why are they releasing it? And how should the American people think about digesting that information against that background? You know, all of your elementary school report cards will be online overnight because of this kind of attack on <laughs> exactly, WikiLeaks. Exactly. High-spirited, they all say. Did they say high-spirited? Yes. Somehow I, that's I don't doubt that. That's the ass. That, yeah. oh, is that. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's what that's kindergarten mine. teachers say when they're like, your kid is a shit. Yeah, right. Mine, high-spirited. <laughs> high-spirited. <laughs> 
<laughs> you might as well Rothkoff. No. Oh, right. my God. I would pay money. Honestly, yeah. I'm offering right now. Okay. You know, uh, so, so if the Russia, if you're listening to this, forget the 30,000 emails, <laughs> right? We'd like Rothkoff. Well, I have uh, to say, kindergarten. the, pen, the, the Penmanship was not my strong suit. <laughs> Let me put that way. Mine too. Yeah, I did not. I did not do very language well. was also yeah a big weak point for me. Um, so there are two theories that are not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive about how these came out. There's the what WikiLeaks said, which is that these were circulating around the ex government hacker world and others, and somebody within that world decided to give it to them. And then there's the a theory that we've all been discussing here, which is that basically this was done by the Russian government. Um, it could be done by the Russian government through an ex-government hacker. I mean, there are all kinds of combinations. But I think one of the things to think about is whether or not this release it's, is it's also a, part it's of— It's like a Boris. Say you're a Dan from San Diego and send this to WikiLeaks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the second issue is— could this be a form of warning? Let's assume for a minute, and it's a big assumption, that this is state-sponsored, that it is Russian. So the Russians know that there's a lot more to come out about the hack. There may be more to come out about all the other investigations into Russia, Russian connections to associates of the president. There's probably cyber activity that the United States has conducted at various moments against Russia. I realize it's shocking what? that it happens, right? Well, if it so, is, you'll write the book on it. Well, I hope so. But uh, this could all be a – before you guys go pretty too far down this line, remember what we have. And if you think back to the last leak – didn't go through WikiLeaks, but it was Shadow Brokers this summer. Shadow Brokers, which you may have missed on summer vacation, um, was the release of NSA source code for breaking into networks around the world. Some of it was old, may have been left up on a on a server that the Russians had gotten their way into or somebody else had gotten their way into. There's some people who believe that the that the uh, former NSA contractor who was arrested in Baltimore earlier this year may have been the source. Who knows? But that was the most recent similar leak, and people thought that also may have been a warning. A warning to whom? About what? It's a warning to this administration and to the rest of the U.S. government and to the U.S. intelligence agencies that were were inside your systems, and it would be a shame if this um, cyber investigation stuff escalated and more had to be released. Yes, yeah, so I've heard this theory a lot. Certainly there's been sort of um, – it, it's been an overlooked story, sort of the significance of shadow brokers and Hal Martin, who's this individual who was arrested. Washington Post has reported that up to 70 or 80 percent of TAO's uh, tools have been compromised. TAO is the tailored a- access operations. That's kind of the elite hacking group at NSA. Um, right, so we're talking about potentially very, very significant breaches if, if what is uh, released is true. And I- I've heard this sort of theory, right, that this is, this is a warning from the Russians, right, like nice NSA – would be a shame if something happened to it sort of thing. The thing there, I have sort of two questions about it. Um, One is, if you're a nation state that has managed to get your hands on sort of the most secret tools of your adversary, why in God's name would you then release all of that? Because they're already outdated. I I don't know that that is that accurately reflects sort of the uh, the timeliness or evolution of the way those tools tend to be used and evolved. Although 
potentially, right? That that's one explanation, right? You don't think that they're going to be worthwhile, or or the cost outweighs any cost to you. But it does seem there's a strange calculus there. Usually, if you have that kind of access, you want to preserve it by not giving up the fact that you know all of this stuff. Um, the other feature that's sort of uh, I think difficult is so if you're right, right? And this is the Russian sort of signaling saying we have all of this stuff and we're going to release it if you if you are too rough on us. How should the United States respond to that by saying, oh, oh, never mind, I guess, you know, well, you've gotten us. No, right? They're they're much better off, one, figuring out what exactly the Russians know and then sort of pushing pushing that information onto the public because for secrecy and operational purposes, those tools are burned, uh, especially burned against sort of Russia and its uh, its allies. The other thing is sort of the, the, the deterrence psychology there of if you allow yourself to be deterred by this kind of behavior— um, you invite this kind of behavior in the future. And so traditionally, the response to that kind of thing is, oh, yeah, you want to play this game? We're a lot better in this space than you are. We can do a lot more damage. We have Maybe we have higher vulnerabilities, but uh, sort of going all in. And so if you're right, I think my, my question, and it's a genuine question, is what what is the United States supposed to do about it in terms of response? So we could we could play out these conspiracy theories uh, for the rest of the broadcast, and if so, I want my own ER tin hat, you know, with a little tin foil hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, could could yeah, we do that? You don't have one. I... <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, everybody. Every time can, can, Sanger is in here, he is wearing a tin foil is, hat. Yeah, yeah. It's a little right? Fact. Yeah, That's no, it. people by, don't by, realize by that because but, he's been so he's been. It worked in this beat for so long. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does do strange things to the mind. But when you get to the deterrence issue of this, so think about the DNC hack. They weren't especially careful. They, there is a theory under which they kind of wanted to be seen or wanted to be caught. And, of course, by the time they turned out the, the emails, the DNC, the DNC hack. Wanted no, to be caught? No, 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 no. That the, that the Russians who went into the DNC weren't especially careful, oh, and that the um, that the emails that they let that they ultimately published, you know, they determined in the end that the value of publishing the emails was greater than revealing, you know, that they had gone in, and they were kind of proud of it. So it's very hard to figure out the motives of hackers along the way, particularly in an era that we've turned to of political hacking, where the greatest value comes from making the material public. Well, sometimes. I mean, you know, we had another incident like this this week, right? The president of the United States. Was this the FP hack? (laughs) No, the the president – we've – as you know, we've been part of some of these bigger – you know, cooler hacks. We don't have to pretend. But the, the another form of insanity that people actually think that there's a lot to be learned by breaking into FP. Rothkoff's computer exactly. here. Yeah. Well, exactly. But nobody here fell for the phishing. In in any event, the president of the United States chose to tweet out that the former president he thought had hacked into Trump Tower. And wiretapped. Wiretapped. T-A-P-P. yes. <laughs> I believe. Was it? Now, th- th- this this actually supports your point, right? I mean, he wouldn't have mentioned this except he thought that it was to his benefit to mention it, right? He's I, God knows why he thought it was to his benefit. Maybe it was going to change the subject. Maybe it was some other kind of a thing. But it does seem to me that people tend to do these things for a reason, 
that isn't just the free flow of information. Mm -hmm. I think that that's an interesting explanation for it. Um, I think that there are usually reasons, although in this case, frankly, it could be as much pathological as actually some I sort think of that's strategic a person. No, well, I think pathologically, even pathological actors have a motive. Right. Um, I, I think, I mean, sort of, uh, you know, Michael Hayden observed that um, perhaps Trump forgot he was president for a moment. Um, right. This this instinct to tweet out these accusations when you are actually in a position to, I don't know, pick up the phone and demand the FBI director tell you whether or not this is true, uh, sort of uh, use the various resources of the executive branch to actually get to the bottom of the issue. But I think he just wanted to change the conversation. I well, think I think that in both of these cases, a very plausible explanation is that they wanted to change the conversation. I think that that's uh, I think that's true, and I think in both cases the sort of timing of the message did serve a strategic uh, purpose. And actually, the specific WikiLeaks uh, sort of disclosures do dovetail dovetail with very very particular policy debates going on in the United States and sort of a perilous moment in the relationship between the president and the intelligence community. Uh, certainly, these FISA tweets. I, I, they had the effect of, of sort of changing the conversation. Um, I think the problem is that this is one of the most sort of spectacular self-owns of sort of American political history. Susan, you're revealing your sort of legal background here and so forth. I don't by remember the, the word. legal term self-own. Self-own, no, yeah. No, that's, by using no, that's, the, that's by, in the by, by referring yes. to these as FISA tweets, because what was interesting about the tweets was it never mentioned FISA. That's and if true. you go and read the reporting of my colleague's and Thrush and Maggie Haberman, they reported in uh, in the Times that the president, after he issued these tweets, was pretty good mood, pretty happy with himself, went off, did a round or two of golf, <laughs> came back and realized what had happened and began asking questions about how one actually does order uh, a, a wiretap. And uh, whether or not the president can do it and what are the – you know, all of these questions that would have been really interesting to ask pre-tweet. Or pre-inauguration. Or pre-inauguration, right. So what have we learned about Donald Trump through all of this? I mean some of the things that we've just discussed you've gotten, okay? The things we've learned. The things we've learned. But one of them that keeps striking me is that – we all sit around this table and think about institutions, okay? So we know that post-Nixon, we had institutions that were created to keep the president from saying, I want everything Rothkoff says to anybody to be recorded. And instead, you've got to go through these procedures and these institutions and FISA courts and all that. In President Trump's mind, the government is essentially about people. It is not about institutions. The government was Obama until noon on January 20th. The government has been Trump since noon on January 20th. And what the first month and a half has been all about has been the rude discovery that there are all these other institutions out here that can impinge on the power of these individuals. There's a court that can actually delay the implementation of the uh, immigration bans. Uh, there's Congress that can get in the way of all sorts of things. Uh, there are all these regulatory agencies. There's a, the bureaucracy that can leak out what you're doing. And I think what you're seeing is the railing against that. So I, I agree, although it's hard to understand how exactly that this series of tweets 
serves that goal, right? It, it only serves to raise suspicion. Um, if the, you thought about it in advance, yes. Right, but this this is sort of a, a demonstration, I think, of the perilousness of the situation we're in because, you know, I, I tend to believe, right, there are lots of, of institutional and normative protections that are sort of the, the strength of the system and, and they're all going to be these these very strong antibodies that uh, that sort of fight against Trump. Um, but the truth of the matter is is that lots and lots of the protections that you're referring to, right, sort of in the FISA national security context are things like the Levy guidelines and the Woods procedures and all these sort of very very uh, technical, specific things that, that are designed free to mug, prevent— Free mug for the first person to write in with what the Levy guidelines are <laughs> exactly. and the Woods procedures are. Uh, Which of your many new nugs does that person get? I mean, there are we, many new mugs. Can we do up a Levy guidelines mug? Uh, we don't have one yet, but we have I one. I would buy that mug. Can we work on guidelines mug? Yeah. Well, so the Levy guidelines, I would say, among other things, that there needs to be a predicate for an investigation, right? You actually have to have a factual predicate that's one of the—you know, you can't just decide to investigate anyone just because you feel like it. So th- these important things that You would not be good us, briefing Trump yes. because you would say there must be a predicate. It would go, what's the—you know, talk New York here. What is that's the predicate? It's a pretty good uh, yeah. Trump. Um, right. So, so these things that sort of national security law nerds care a lot about um, but are actually not legal protections at all. Um, they are uh, normative or policy protections, which t- technically, not even technically, literally, the president of the United States has the ability to alter. His attorney general has the ability to alter those protections. And one of the things about the thoughtlessness with which he conducts himself and the thoughtlessness with, with, with which he sort of communicates with the public is that he doesn't appear to even understand what the normative protections are, why they exist, what transgressing them might mean, what it means to have your press secretary pick up the phone and call the FBI or call the, uh, you know, the chairman of the SSCI and direct them to have conversations with the press. He's running or sort of have Stephen Miller call up the U.S. attorney right, in New York. Or- running roughshod over all of these protections that technically are not legal uh, and therefore you can't hold him accountable by saying, you know, this, you're not allowed to do this as a matter of law, um, but are they're being done in such a, a thoughtless way that he doesn't seem to be paying a political price for it because the answer is always, oh, no, no, he never intended to sort of uh, contribute to the destruction of, of institutions or, or these various protections. He's just an idiot and he didn't mean well, it. Let's stipulate that for a second. I mean, I hear a lot of discussion about this and people constantly come up and they say, well, you know, either Trump is an idiot or he's a master strategist. And I think in, we have enough evidence at this point to conclude he's an idiot. There, There is very little in the way of master strategy. He is super impulse-driven. Strategy isn't really his strong suit. But, you know, in terms of this particular thing, you know, David just said that Glenn Thrush and Maggie Habram went out and reported this thing <laughs> and that that he was happy afterwards. And so there had to have been a reason he was happy. You know, why was he happy? Because he struck a blow against Obama? Because he changed the subject from the Sessions thing, which had made him unhappy. And and I think it, it it's, it's one or both of those things. But what all he did in the end was assure that these congressional committees to whom he's now had to go buck this because the White House came up with this crazy idea, well, it needs to be investigated. That's all the oh, president. I, I got to tell you, one of the th- <laughs> moments of the week for me so far is Sean Spicer saying, oh, this has to be handled by Congress. It's a separation of powers issue. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what was that separation of powers? I was like, power? what the fuck does that mean, <laughs> right. separation of powers? The president said this one thing, and then all of a sudden, 
it's not up to you to defend it. It's up to somebody else to defend it. That's in the Constitution. My my explanation for this is I bet the White House has been told a hundred million times over the past, you know, 48 days or whatever that, oh, you know, this is really a separation of powers issues, which is like the executive and congressional way of telling someone to F off. And so now they're trying to use it to tell other people to F off, but they don't understand. Right. But but Um, this is referring to the balance of ass covering clause in mm-hmm, the Constitution, mm-hmm. where if you do something wrong, somebody else has got to clean up your mess. I mean, I mean, the that? irony is, of course, the last thing that Trump wants is a serious independent congressional investigation that he has no control over. Which is exactly what he's kind of invited. No, no, he's going to get it. Yeah, I he, mean, he now, whether it's serious or not, I mean, the first public hearings are going to be on March 20th, I, I think. think. And the, 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 the possibility is that those hearings will start and the Republicans will chair them in such a way that we realize they're a sham very quickly. But I think that will generate outrage. So there are multiple investigations and multiple options. So there is the SSCI investigation and the Senate Intelligence Committee. That is by far sort of the most developed uh, inquiry that's going on. Uh, Mitch McConnell sort of had uh, his strategy had been to say, no, 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 um, we don't need to form a new select committee. We don't need to have a bipartisan commission sort of holding off any you know more sort of aggressive measures by saying this is all sort of within the SSCI's jurisdiction already. They'll conduct this investigation. Now, uh, Senator Burr's phone calls with uh, with members of the press may have blown that up to some degree. Um, then there's the HIPSI uh, investigations of the House Intelligence Committee. Um, Devin Nunes, who has behaved rather strangely over the past couple of weeks. That's incredibly um, charitable. Not mm-hmm. only in, in sort of um, his unfailing defense of, uh, of President Trump's sort of activities and motivations and the fact that he just, aw shucks, he just doesn't understand why anybody thinks there's any there there with these Russia allegations. Um, but also for someone who's been conducting oversight of the NSA and intelligence community for a number of years um, to not understand some of the basics of FISA targeting is a, a Look, little bit anybody alarming. who's in Devin Nunez's district ought to run an Elmo doll against him in the next congressional election. Because is that the Elmo one of those happens. that records? It, it doesn't even have to be. It could be just a regular inert Elmo doll, and it would do right. more good for the district exactly. than Devin Nunez. And it would also undoubtedly be smarter than Devin Nunez because his defenses have been... So lame. I do not have much to say in the way of defense of uh, Nunes. But the hearings that are for March 20th are the HIPSI hearings. Nunes has certainly been dragging his feet, despite his sort of his vice chair counterpart, Adam Schiff, pushing him really hard. So the question now will become, uh, I don't think there's any real sort of belief that, oh, the HIPSI is going to undertake this very, you know, sort of critical investigation. There's nothing that matters more in a congressional investigation than a chair that's actually motivated to get to the truth. That's that's the difference between something that's effective and something that's a sham. The real question is going to be whether or not the SSCI can uh, get enough assurances to sort of proceed independently or whether or not they can use uh, Trump's sort of various missteps at this point to push for the formation of a select committee uh, or a bipartisan commission well, that's actually going to get to the bottom of it. setting, you know, they call witnesses. It's on television. Schiff asks questions. It does create the opportunity yeah, to and get you can, you can do a somewhere. Lot of, right. So, David, I was struck during the weekend by the fact – if you think about this whole conversation we've had, we started with what are the limits on the CIA in actually using electronic and cyber capability to go do this. Then – Which we learned was a post-it note. Right. Laptop, a post-it note over your right. Yeah. Then the second was 
Uh, what are the limits that the president needs to learn about what its wiretap authorities are, which was basically going back to the debate in Washington in the post-Watergate era? And then meanwhile, you know, we've got lots of news breaking out all over about actual uses of cyber. I did a little bit of this with uh, what we're doing against missiles uh, directed at the United States or test, being tested in the direction of the United States with Korea. But there are many other uh, examples, which to some degree is, to my mind, the far bigger story of how the United States is using all this technology. And we managed to spend – you know, an entire weekend and much of the week distracted by the president discussing an operation that in all probability didn't actually happen. Well, isn't that, that amazing? Is, it, it is amazing. <laughs> I, I would say, from generally speaking, what you're saying is probably true. You know, I mean, real policy and real things that happen in the world are more important than Washington shenanigans. However, if the Washington shenanigans reveal the ignorance of the president or the instability yeah. of the president, or but that's perhaps, why it's important, right? right. Or, or perhaps suggest the impermanence of the president in the office and that, you know, he may be vulnerable to attacks for these things that he did, then those are substantial stories, right? Yeah. And look, I mean, I think, you know, uh, David's excellent story in, in the Times on uh, on North Korea and sort of the alleged or potential effort sort of to disrupt their David, missile system. David only was the co-author of that. Oh, That's, okay. right. That's right. right. Half the story. <laughs> Half the story. Um, Maybe uh, less. The bad parts. <laughs> the fluff. That, um, you know, it does sort of once again, remind us that um, being president is a really serious, really difficult job um, with lots and lots of consequences for people, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Um, and that cyber is actually a place in which um, it's this is a really, really hard area in which to make policy. So you look at Stuxnet, there's still a real question about whether or not that might have inadvertently accelerated uh, the Iranian nuclear program, right? That there's, there's lots of sort of long-term counterfactual, you know, implications for the private sector, implications for the public sector, legal authorities, issues in this space um, that you need, I don't know, experts, people with experience. Well, that's, I mean, that does get to another point, right? And the, the point is, Sanger, as we know, is kind of old school. And one of, you know, he refers to cyber as a thing. Mm -hmm. But actually, cyber is everything. And everything is imbued with cyber. And you actually have to understand how everything is imbued with cyber. Um, there is no international relationship we've got that doesn't have this kind of component to it. And if the president doesn't understand the mere basics and he doesn't have a high-functioning White House and his advisors don't actually know anything about this stuff, then you have a very serious problem when it comes to making decisions about these various Things it, it seems quite apparent that Trump didn't really know what he was getting into when he got involved with the Yemen raid, which it has subsequently been conclusively uh, demonstrated was not an Obama idea. It was a Trump administration. I mean, it was not an Obama approved. And mission. I can tell you from reading my email that there were many members of the uh, Trump administration who, either because they've been busy or haven't been able to read their briefings or weren't clear from it learned first about our biggest operation against North Korea from reading it in the New York Times. Right, because there's no policy process. There's, you know, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these, you know, these suggest, you know, th th this is, you know, an even bigger problem is the disconnect and the thought that one is going to accidentally stumble into something. I mean, David, you've been covering North Korea um, since it was created, go ahead, say it. Um, for, for, for some time, we're very close to the Kim family. And, and 
you know, they launched four missiles into the Japan Sea of Japan, and the Japanese got very spun up about it. And we now have sent over a THAAD missile defense we, system. We had actually sent it earlier in the Obama time, but, you know, it's another one of those. Like, yeah, you know, but, but, but you we're know. actually assembling the whole little set now. Right. That's, <laughs> you know, it's pissed off the Chinese and so forth. But this is, you know, this is one of those areas of the world where, A, if you're looking for something where ignorance could trigger a real problem, it's here. And B, if you're looking for something to go back to another one of our earlier theories from this episode uh, of kind of wag the dog scenario where you want to distract from something, this is going to be one of the places to present itself fairly early to the president. Fortunately uh, for President Trump, he doesn't need to wag the dog on this because uh, the youngest Mr. Kim, the third generation Mr. Kim, is doing a pretty good wagging job uh, of his own here. You've been studying this part of the world for a long time, right? Uh, a little while. Yeah, yeah. I actually, okay. when I lived in Japan, uh, the current Kim's grandfather was still alive and still running the place. Okay. <laughs> little did you know your expertise in crazy leaders with insane hairdos would be such a, uh, well, a that, relevant skill well, set. Well, that gets to my point. Yeah. That gets to my point. Do you, you've studied the Kim family. Do you think that Kim Jong-un is crazier than Donald Trump? Well, I've sat down and talked to Donald Trump for three and a half hours. I've never had the opportunity or the pleasure to sit down and talk to Kim. But I can say— Okay, let me rephrase the question. In terms of global stability, uh which leader worries you more? Kim worries me more. And the reason for that is that there are people around Donald Trump. By the way, I got an eye roll from Susan that registered as a dissent to me. So we'll go to her in a second. So let me make my case and Susan can make the other case. Okay. You don't want – by the way, I've done this now. We've done this a few times. You don't want to be on the other side of the argument from Susan, but give it a shot. Yeah. I've done this a few times myself. I've never won one yet either. But, you know, hope springs eternal. Okay. So here's the argument for it. That – as we have learned— now, That would be you, a mug. It would say, I give up Susan on the side of it or something. It's good. Send one to my house. My husband can use it. Um, the, the argument is that there are now people around Donald Trump who have a way, except when he's tweeting on Saturday mornings, to say, you know, Mr. President, you might want to think that one through again. And you saw it in the immigration order when suddenly Iraq is gone after Mattis intervenes. You've seen it in a few other cases where they've had to peel things back. Things don't get peeled back in North Korea. No one stops Kim Jong-un and said, you know, sir, at this particular moment in time where you've pissed off the Chinese so much that even they are cutting off our sale of coal to them, this might not be the greatest moment to launch those four missiles, much fun as it would be to light these things off. You don't do that because if you do, you end up being target practice for an anti-aircraft gun that they have parked just outside of uh, of Pyongyang. Well, Susan will now explain to you the Why fundamental – yes, well, there's a <laughs> fundamental concept in foreign policy called the insanity to power ratio. And so it's like you, the crazy hot matrix for yeah, women. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of like that. Um, and why isn't there a crazy? This either is one inter- of us had said that. No, we would be screwed. You know? That's what I'm saying. This is International Women's Day. Why is there not a crazy hot ratio for men? Because you know where Kim Jong-un would be on that. Crazy, <laughs> powerful, crazy. on a global threat grid. Yeah, yeah, right. No, but, but, but clearly you could be half as crazy as Kim and a thousand times more powerful and be more dangerous. But I could be wrong. So I, I tend to agree with that. Look, I, I agree that the North Koreans have the possibility of – 
they're the more likely actors to, I don't know, launch a nuclear weapon, right, to sort of do the kind of crazy unhinged thing that I still hope and pray in my heart of hearts, like Donald Trump will not or or other elements of the system will, will work to constrain him, even though technically he does have the legal, uh, you know, authority to do that in very short order. I think the one thing about sort of the North Koreans is the Chinese are still an immensely relevant actor there. Um, sort of the, the North Koreans are just dependent for their survival. And so and while I'm so not... Successful at limiting North Korean action so far. I'm so impressed. (laughs) Actually, actually, that that to be serious for a second, you don't know. The reality is that the North Koreans have done certain things and haven't gone to war. They've, you know, and and they may feel that there's certain things the Chinese are cool with, and there's certain things the Chinese are not cool with. Yeah, look, I mean, you you never know sort of the counterfactual and what uh, what else might have happened. I, I agree right, that the North Koreans have clearly also been true for Donald Trump. We don't know what again. else would have happened had Jared Kushner not been around, had Ivanka not been around. Wow, right. you bought it. You've, you've bought into that. <laughs> right, sort of in, you know, as much as the North Koreans have um, tested Chinese patients, right? So this assassination that occurred in Malaysia and the hack of Sony. And, and all of these sort of different things that have, have caused nothing but headaches for the Chinese, they haven't really done anything yet that genuinely risked war or, or an invasion or some sort of actual battle. You know, that, that Chinese historical memory of losing, you know, I think it was 400,000, 500,000 troops uh, sort of in defense of North Korea, I, I think those memories still have a lot of resonance in those countries. And so I do think that there is, whenever we think about sort of the below threshold activity we're seeing, I think that threshold of, of China saying, if you do something that is genuinely going to risk a military confrontation, uh, it's going to be the end of you. Well, I think it point that points to what the American strategy here is likely to be or at least should be, which is that what have we seen that we have done that has most angered the Chinese? It's put a single Thad anti-missile system that can't possibly hit a Chinese missile. I, I, th- I think actually in it South was Korea. saying we were going to go off the one China policy, but go no, on. No, because that got corrected like right away. Okay, but the thing that we have the thing that we've done in the Korea context has been to put in, and this was started in Obama's time. Uh, it's not not new to Donald Trump. So it seems to me that if you if you actually are executing a China strategy, you start. By saying to the Chinese, as I fully expect Rex Tillerson will, if properly briefed next week when he By goes who? to Beijing. Who's going to brief If him? anyone can find him. If we can find him. We're, we're, I'm looking. I'm looking all as over. As Rosa said, I know there's here. a milk carton with Rex Tillerson's <laughs> face on the side of it. Um, that sounds like Rosa. But the message should be, if you don't like this Thad thing, imagine how you're going to like a circle of anti-missile defenses that is running up and down the Korean coast and all along Japan because you've let this crazy go so far that we can no longer go do this. So this one you're going to lose in the sea of other anti-missile defenses we'll be putting up there. Well, I got to say, you know, we did the first episode of the ER this week from Abu Dhabi. We were talking with some regional experts. We were talking about the region. And then we were also at meetings and talking to other people about the region while we were over there. And, you know, one of the surprising things of all this was, I mean, there were a couple of big themes. One, you know, a lot of people in the Gulf are perfectly happy to have Trump because he doesn't like the Iranians and he doesn't like ISIS and he's not going to bug them a lot about things like human rights. And so, you know, he's going to let them go on their way and be supportive of them. They like that. And they're willing to overlook the Islamophobia. 
The flip side, however, is that once we start gaming out what's going to happen, they've got issues. And they start seeing that these things could get off track. But they say the Iranians are, are rational. You know, the, 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 the final argument, is, you know, it's like, well, something could go wrong in Yemen. They go, yeah, but the Iranians are rational. You know, they're not going to provoke the United States. They, you know, they, they've pulled back from some of the provocations that they've done. The Chinese are rational. We are actually living in a world right now where the sort of so-called bad actors of the past are our bulwark against the irrationality of the U.S. president, which is – Really but you haven't heard anybody make that argument about the North Koreans yet. No, but we <laughs> make it about the Chinese, yeah. about the North Koreans. Right. We also have heard more from the Chinese about North Korea policy than we've heard from the U.S. Yeah, the U.S. has been strangely silent about Funny that. Funny that. It's been strangely silent about most things on policy. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think sort of the, the like pull it all together point is um, whenever you have a president who is maybe mentally unstable, maybe an idiot who, you know, maybe a master strategist um, who runs over norms and different forms of protections. Um, there are lots of places in which other actors will get out of his way in order to avoid the crisis. So actors, other branches in the United States that will move in order to avoid a constitutional crisis, other countries that will move in order to avoid a geopolitical crisis. And that will work for a while until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, we're all going to have really, really serious problems on our hands. And we should all just hope that that moment comes later rather than sooner and that there are actual adults in the room when that when when it does happen and we do have to respond. Folks, if you've been listening to the ER over the course of the past year, you know that when somebody comes to a great tie-it-all-up point, that means we're at the end of the episode. Uh, so I'm going to add my little footnote to that, and that is if, you know, it's just as a pro tip from here inside the um, deep State Cafe, where we broadcast from every day. Um, uh, the pro tip from here is – we used to call it the blob, but now we're the Deep State Cafe. The pro tip is if there's a choice between somebody being maybe crazy and maybe stupid or being maybe a master strategist, they're almost always crazy and stupid. Um, it's just – the way of the world. That tends not to be the cover master strategists use for I think themselves. you've got the slogan for another mug. Which is, welcome to the Deep State no, no, well, Cafe. The Deep State Cafe is definitely definitely a mug we're going to have to do. Don't kid yourself. He's crazy and stupid. Don't kid yourself. He's, <laughs> thank you, Susan. That is a mug. Don't kid yourself. He's crazy and stupid. That would be the most popular mug that we ever I had, think I Deep think. Deep State Cafe with a little bit of like real job yeah. in it. That's yeah, Maria, two it. more. Call it. Let's have some more mugs. Um, the, she, the mug budget it's is the endless. bane of her existence. <laughs> Maria goes home at night. She's like, the mug. Stop that. Anyway, um, folks. It's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you, David. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, everybody out there. Thank you, Maria, for your patience. And we'll be back next week with more ER on more exciting and unnerving subjects. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.